Hi, I'm Mary Worden, and this is Premier Health Now On Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. This is the week of April 12th, 2021. I was hopeless because I felt helpless. I went to work one day and it was just a normal day uh, in, in January and um, I just stopped. I just stopped in my tracks. It was the second week of, of January and I just walked into my boss's office and said, I don't have anything else to give. I think we all had moments that we felt similar to this during the last year in one way or another. But what if your job tasked you with something you or anyone that you work with had never dealt with before? Caring for people who were sick for months and months and in some circumstances, sitting with people at the end of their lives because their family could not be there with them. All of this without enough. Without enough PPE at times, without certainty of what was to come, without family and friends, without our normal routines, without a break. This is how it felt to some of the premier health frontline workers as they reflect on the last year. People have, they've got just so much energy and everybody's got a breaking point. Even if we're not on the front lines, we're all feeling it. A couple of the girls and I just worked about every single day. Um, there were many times throughout the day, almost every day, that one of us would break down and cry or, you know, have to leave the floor just so that we could kind of gather ourselves and come back to it. I have been a nurse for 32 years and this is why this is what I do. I mean, you know, we just keep coming back because we've made a commitment to the patients, you know, to the hospital, to the patients that we are nurses and this is what we do. Go home, eat, take a shower and do it all over again the next morning. Try and find out what can I do to help you. you know, I, I talked to one of my colleagues as a nurse and, you know, she was in tears. It was a tough time. Really was. She's seen far more death than I can imagine. Uh, I may see it in a patient's chart that they've passed, but I'm not there when it happens, typically. That's hard. Uh, you see people, you know, it's chiseling away at them with time. It's been very difficult. For me, the biggest struggle with COVID has been the patients and what they experience and the family members. It's been really hard for me. You see patients one day on your table, and the next day they're gone, they're not at the hospital anymore because they've passed away. COVID is more than what anybody thinks it is. And as soon as you think you got a handle on it and you know what, what you're dealing with, it throws you a curveball. I've watched people die. I've watched families say goodbye to their loved ones. I myself, have even lost a couple of family members. So yes, it can be emotional. And you just wish that you could do more than what you do. But you know that anything you do can be a blessing for someone else. The first thing that'll come to mind is, you know, the isolation. 
not being able to see my family. I was isolated from them. I couldn't see my grandson. There's a lot of FaceTime. That's real tough not to be able to see your family, get to see your grandkids, because they're my life. And I, I understand how families feel, you know. We get these patients that had COVID-type symptoms and we couldn't have them in. We had to c contact them by call phone. They were in the car. I mean, I personally know what it feels like, but I, it's terrible for the families too. I called up my family and my sisters and I talked to my nieces and nephews and I'm like, I don't, I don't know when the next time I'm gonna see you again because I'm gonna be working with these uh, patients that have COVID every single day and it's not gonna be safe for me to be around you. Um, I remember when COVID first hit, uh, I had to hold the phone up to a patient's ear so their family could sing happy birthday to them. That was something as a nurse I've never had to experience before. I feel like every nurse um, could probably tell you a story of being there for a patient in their most vulnerable time. And we unfortunately experienced that time and time and time again uh, in the last year. Today, I'm joined by a group of physician leaders from Premier Health. I am um, Andre Harris. I'm the Chief Medical Officer for Atrium Medical Center. Mark Belcastro, Chief Medical Officer for Premier Health. Roberta Colon, I'm the Chief Medical Officer for Miami Valley Hospital. Steve Burdett, I'm the Medical Director of Infection Prevention for Miami Valley Hospital. And Joe Allen, uh, one of the Regional Medical Directors for uh, PPN. Scott Kanegi, Chief Medical Officer, Upper Valley Medical Center. Hi everyone. At what point as medical professionals did you know that this was going to be something really big? We just had our first reported case in Ohio and Dr. Holler set, I don't know if you sent it by text Rob or if you just popped over because we're right next to one another. And then Dr. Holler, Holler sent Rob and I a text that said something like, uh, put your roller skates on or, you know, get ready to roll. So I knew right then, didn't know what the timeline would look like, but I said, okay, it's real. You know, for, for me, when, I, when it got super real to me is we were uh, sitting down as a, as a region, and I'm trying to remember whether this was, whether this was Gadaha or was the, whether this was the health, health collaborative, but, Premier was working on how we were going to um, allocate resources. And we brought in an ethicist to lead this discussion on how we would allocate ventilators if we got down to that point. Um, and the, the whole concept of the hospital and then and then when it came down to it, if there was a patient who was going to uh, dispute, you know, their loved one being on a ventilator versus not being on a ventilator, it was going to come down to the chief medical officer and the COO of each hospital to make the final determination. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know, will I be in a situation where I'm gonna have to choose on who gets to live and die? And that's when it hit me so, so deep because I was like, you know, we could, we could be dealing with an, uh, an Italy situation um, that we're 
we're running out of resources in, in the region. That That's when it really kind of sunk in for me. So Dr. Harris mentioned, you know, Italy, and that from my standpoint, that's when I knew that this was real. You know, in January, first part of January, um, you know, I was worried, but we had had local issues with various coronaviruses and other viruses over the last decade or so that hadn't really gone anywhere. But the Italians have a healthcare infrastructure that is second to none. And when they were no longer able to handle it and their outbreak, you know, their pandemic started January 31st of 2020, um, when they were overwhelmed and having running out of critical care doctors, running out of beds, that's when I knew that if it affected them, it was going to affect us. And then it was not a matter of if, but a matter of when. So then talking to my friends on the West Coast here in the Seattle area, which is where the United States outbreak started, you know, it was just, again, it was just a matter of time and, until it hit us. That's great. For, for me, it really was surreal to begin with. I was a little different because I was outside the hospital and really involved in the ambulatory side of things. And um, set up a testing center at UD as we're doing that. It was just a lot of work over a really quick, uh, short period of time. And um, it was just work, work, work. It didn't really hit. I mean, there was certainly we were thinking about it in testing, but when it really became real for me, when I was like, oh, this is really something that to really get worried about is when I saw one of my colleagues come through there, right? So one of my colleagues, somebody I've worked with before, comes through the testing site to get tested and you go, oh, crap, this, is, this isn't just, you know, nameless faces or what have you. We're testing somebody I know and, and they were pretty sick. So you, you see that and it really hit pretty hard then. Like not only was it, yes, there's a lot of impact to a lot of people around, but that was a personal impact that you uh you really had a hard time stepping away from them. Uh, it, it became very real very quickly. Dr. Allen, you started to touch on this topic. How did your roles change over the last year? I think we all saw a market change in each one of our roles, what we did, what we were focused on. For, for me, it became, um, it became getting out of the office and seeing patients on a daily basis, uh, at least patients I was caring for directly. And, um, and starting to oversee a group of people who were doing something else. In this case, it was testing. Uh, eventually, I got back into the office and, still, and uh, started caring for some of those patients more directly. But that was a big difference for me. I have not had that happen uh, previous in my career where I've stepped completely out of the office for a long period of time. And so for approximately three months, I was in, on UD's campus doing, uh, doing what we were doing, uh, trying to figure out how to test and how to work folks through and get a large volume of people through there. And uh, that was a big difference for me. Managing people as opposed to managing disease and patients was, was a market change for me. Yeah, I think for me, uh, this, this took on a, a very big system role very early on, uh, where we started around January, really sending out a lot of information uh, about what COVID was. Actually, at that time, it wasn't even called COVID. Uh, it was the, the coronavirus before we started naming it and um, trying to keep the information flowing. So at first it was uh, information dissemination. And then as we started seeing it locally and starting to prepare for the onslaught that we were all worried about, um, we started getting involved with preparations and looking at supplies. And that's something I've never had to do, but we have a, a great team from sourcing that was able to get us all that information and trying to figure out how many days we had on hand of different equipment, what equipment we would need and where. Um, and as we progress working with uh, Dr. Burdett and our clinical team to start coming up with the beginnings of diagnosing, 
treatment, isolation plans for something that just nobody had anywhere in the agenda um, was it just it was this continuously changing and evolving role uh, through the pandemic. You know, Mary, I suddenly got thrust into the incident command for the system and we had never done an incident command system wide. We did them for hospital. I had done them many times as a CMO for Miami Valley Hospital, but never as a system. And I had to deal with a lot of ambiguity to allow my CMOs to, to manage their sites at the same time trying to advocate for some level of consistency uh, in supporting Rob and all the work. And, you know, I'm not sure how much Rob had had a choice in his role changing because very early on when it hit, I said, you're going to become the face of this and that's what I need you to do. And uh, he stepped up to it uh, in, in, in a huge way with partnership with Steve. So, uh, but I, I sort of assigned him his new role. Well, you all do a really fantastic job in the media, so kudos there. And with roles changing, how did your roles cross over in new ways? I can tell you that the media one was was one that I've never had in in my uh, in my planning or expectation at any point in my entire life. Um, so that that's probably the most noticeable day to day change because it it's out there. Um, it was a little less uncomfortable because it really started from teaching. Uh, and what we wanted to do was teach people about the disease, get information out there, get the right information, because at the beginning, there was so much misinformation in social media. There was a lot of fear, a lot of panic. Um, and, and that was our way of trying to be able to reach out to our community to just be able to keep them informed. But that was something I never envisioned doing. And did any of your roles cross over with each other's in a way that was new due to the pandemic? Well, the CMOs, you know, all the CMOs, so myself, Dr. Colon, Dr. Belcastro, Dr. Kanegi, we all were, you know, real regular with keeping in touch with each other. Our, our <laughs> We began to keep in touch with each other over the weekends, um, which became a bigger thing. Lots of communication that went on um, that we probably, you know, that we had no need for prior to this. Um, you know, it was it was interesting because as Mark was saying, he was trying to give some give some latitude to the hospitals to be able to kind of move and do things. You know, each one of us have our president, our COO, you know, our chief nursing officer that we that we collaborate with on an executive standpoint. Um, while also trying to say, okay, what is what is the system doing as a whole? How, you know, do we step out and make this change or do we hold fast and wait for things to come through? And so there was a bit of a of a tightrope that you were walking, um, trying to make sure that you address the needs of your particular hospital because what happens, what what we needed at Atrium was different than what was needed at the Valley. Um, as an example, we were initially set up as a Papperhood hospital. I mean, that was what we were supposed to be doing. Um, but quickly, we everybody wanted to have an N95 mask on. And so, how do we, how do we reestablish ourselves? How do we, you know? It became really important for us to recognize the people. 
and recognize the, the staff that, that was uh, responding to the changes that were happening. Um, as it is in any bigger organization, you may not agree with everything that's, that's going on, but you have to present a united front so that the people are not um, are not are, are not in fear. And that was a big. Uh, I remember talking to Rob about this real early on. Is that there was no such thing as science at the beginning of this. Um, there was just there was fear, and there were all kinds of all kinds of uh, made up things that were out there so and and you know and then it didn't help that as the information evolved it changed what was said at the beginning and so you know we were really big you know you gotta think we were really big on touch at the very beginning of this you know don't touch your face don't do, you know and that evolved as things went on and not that you don't need to keep your hands clean but you know it it, it just evolved as the time went on and so it kind of fed into the conspiracy theories because they were like, see, that it, it, we were right or they don't know what they're doing. And and I remember talking to several people saying, you know, we just, it's evolving, grow with us and let's continue to keep moving forward. Um, but let's try and keep everybody as safe as possible. It, but it, it was a, it was a, it was a balancing act. It was definitely a balancing act. Mary, you know, I, what I'd say from an Upper Valley standpoint is, is that um, I don't necessarily know that anything changed, but I was very appreciative uh, how much I was supported um, by the other CMOs. Uh, Mark is a system CMO. Um, you know, Dr. Cologne is kind of the expert in this uh, here at Upper Valley. And um, what, what, I, what I really remember about this is, is, you know, the two nursing homes up here getting hit very, very hard. Um, I mean, extremely hard um, with a lot of deaths because of it, unfortunately, which weighed very heavily on medical staff and, and others in this community and, and, and spent a lot of fear uh, here, up here in Miami County. Um, and I, I, I kind of remember, you know, the system, uh, you know, in Miami Valley and Atrium, and, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but you know, preparing for what was coming as Upper Valley was actually going through what was already here. Um, and I felt 100% supported by Dr. Cologne and you know, Dr. Bocastro and Dr. Uh, Harris, as, as well as Dr. Burdett. Um, you know, and, and, and Joe, uh, you know, Dr. Allen uh, is up in this area. Um, so it was. It was really scary um, at the beginning because, like I said, we we I think we really got hit really really hard. But um, you know, I, I just felt supported uh, is the best way I know how to explain it. And we obviously you know, dealt with it, got through it with the help of Dr. Burnett and Dr. Manis and and others uh, to be able to get our nursing homes cleared for this. But uh, there at the very beginning, it was kind of a feeling of you know everybody in a panic, trying to get ready for what was happening and gosh darn it they were they, they were already in our house you know they were it was already in our house it wasn't you know we, there was no preparing it was already here um but that's that I, I think that's probably what i remember the most about it dr kanegi you talked about teamwork and support what other ways was teamwork demonstrated during these challenging times i think uh, dr harris said on this quite a bit here that uh, the information was coming in so rapidly and there was such a large volume of it then things change so quickly that you really rely on everybody else to kind of 
uh, their own little piece of it. They heard something, they came down. And so there was a lot of communication going back and forth on how to manage a lot of this and uh, chronically kind of just talking amongst the group there. And so it, it really did um, become quite pertinent that that, uh, I think I used how that I say this, the, uh, what I knew to be true yesterday changed tomorrow. Um, and that was true the whole way through this. And it's gotten a little bit, a little bit better now. There's still some things changing as we go along. And it's, uh, that was pretty profound to me. So I would also add that from a, again, from a nursing staff, from a patient care tech staff, having the physicians and not necessarily, I mean, the physicians who were making the COVID decisions um, in the units on a daily basis, I think was very comforting to them, especially early on. There was a lot of questions of PPE and were we doing things right? And I think seeing Dr. Cologne go into rooms, Dr. Holler go into rooms, myself and my ID colleagues, as we were going into the rooms with the exact same stuff that they were, I think helped calm a lot of the fears and a lot of the angst. And again, it would take hours to make rounds, not because of the patients, but because the nurses would have a lot of questions because we all had questions you know, at that time. So the real-time communication, and while I'm sick of social media and I would love to delete Twitter, I haven't been on Facebook in a decade. Uh, secretly, my wife checks it and keeps me up to date, but uh, I haven't been on Facebook. Um, doing videos for the nursing staff, answering things, doing the unit meetings that then they could share over their various platforms so that they, if somebody wasn't working that day, could watch it. And so the night people knew what was going on different ways for the staff to communicate. I think that being in the trenches with everybody and wearing the same PPE that they were, I think was very comforting and the actions spoke louder than any words that we would say to them. Personally or professionally, what was the worst day you had during the pandemic? I can think of two worst days. Um, probably the day that our colleague um, Dr. Chandra really took a turn for the worse because we had already seen where where that could end up. Um, and I think initially when when he when he got the virus, we were expecting, like everybody else, that he was going to be able to just get through it and tough it out just fine. But I think when he started taking a turn for the worst, it hit home um, because it was somebody that you know, I had known for a long time that I had worked with um, and that I had seen when when he was not doing so poorly. So that was probably the toughest day, um, one of the toughest days. And um, and the other one was at the end of a particularly difficult week um, of trying to get education out, roll out some policies. Um, and we kept hearing back about people not feeling safe and people being worried. Um, I remember I went about four nights without sleeping, um, just from staying up and being worried that the decisions we were making, because there was no playbook for this, um, were, were potentially not the right ones and that there were going to be thousands of people that we were putting in harm's way. Um, I remember Steve was very good about passing on information from his colleagues, getting the information from University of Washington. Hey, I spoke with this person. This is what they're doing. Um, and, and trying to get those reassurances. 
but it was um, I think it was the first time that I've had to have had, that I've had to make decisions that affected that many people with potentially significant implications. So I think it was that Friday when everything really just had caught up with me and uh, it was it was really rough. It was I think that the, the first day that I've really um, was exhausted at work and and just needed a break. Uh, Dr. Haller said, make sure you turn off your cell phone this weekend, take the weekend off. It was after probably about two months of just nonstop. Um, certainly nothing like what the docs have been going through taking care of the patients, uh, but it was it was difficult. Rob, you, you had a big lift for so many people and and, and then and, and then even myself personally. Uh, you know, Mary, I, I, I could think of three events, uh, but I'll, I'll land on the worst one. You know, my mother, it'll be, let's see, what's today, the 22nd and four days, it'll be the anniversary of my mom's passing. There was a bit of a mixed blessing in that because she had Alzheimer's and my sister was her primary caregiver in Columbus and went to the home twice a day and with the new visitation my mom would have been isolated and would have just tremendously decompensated so you know sometimes you find those small blessings in the passing that she didn't have to endure you know nine months of not seeing my daughter and, and decomp I mean my sister and decompensating then in you know the end of the summer I got the cancer diagnosis but I felt so tremendously supported by the team that, uh, you know, I, I just felt so supported. But probably the worst, the worst point was, uh, it would be Friday night, December 11th, when I learned I had COVID. I was, I was mad because I had done everything that I thought I could do to prevent it by being at home. But I guess with the chemo and not having any immune system, one visit out to my oncology office was enough that somebody somehow it snuck in through the mask. Who knows that I touched something? I'll never know. But I remember, uh, you know, I had an abnormal ch chest CT. I was short of breath. It was Friday night. We had just gotten the monoclonal antibody. I knew that they were sort of the, the day times. At that time, it was Monday through Friday. And I called Rob at seven o'clock and I said, Rob, I, I need the monoclonal antibody. And he arranged for me to get it in our emergency room. And uh, my wife dropped me off. They got me into a room by bypassing everybody. And I just remember thinking, I thought about Dr. Chandra and I thought I could be admitted, maybe never see my wife again and die. And I was terrified that night because I just thought, and then, you know, I did get the monoclonal antibody. I went home and I know Rob had some conversations with Kim about what to watch for, which Kim never shared with me until I was past the point that I needed to be. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm glad she didn't share those conversations with me, but I was appreciative that Rob was in the background sort of coaching her on what to watch for. But I'd say that was my worst point, getting that diagnosis that on a Friday night at seven o'clock and thinking, I have no, you know, I have no white cells. This is gonna overwhelm me and uh, being terrified. But fortunately it came at a time and the Lord 
provided a way. Let's shift gears a little. Tell me about the best day you had during the pandemic. Data we gave our first vaccines. Uh, that was, I think that was the first time that we have been hearing about it. We have been reading about it. Uh, that was the first time that, that there was really, I think, a hope about changing the tide for this um, quickly. So that was, I mean, that was a, a truly happy day for everybody involved. Uh, even the people who were not getting the vaccine uh, were, were very excited that we were, we were having it here. I would agree with you, Rob, 100%. I think uh, for me, it was a little different because we didn't start doing it in ambulatory sites for a little a little bit after we were hitting the hospitals. But when we opened up UD again and had that kind of full circle, so we started the testing out there. And we go back out for that first day and start giving immunizations to our, our rather elderly population that was at risk. And uh, the, the excitement on their faces and then watching the staff and watching what they had gone through this past year and really worked very, very hard. and and really just a lot, like all of us have gone through a ton, and to see their excitement with it as well. Um, to shift that from playing defense to now moving to the offense and, and being able to have something to fight this with is just phenomenal. Um, very exciting day for sure. I'll answer it in a kind of slightly different, probably more of a proud day for me was, in, and it's in conjunction with the, with the vaccination also, is that um, we have a group of uh, African-American physicians in the area that worked with Premier to um, set up a vaccination clinic. Um, <laughs> I remember being extremely exhausted that week because uh, we didn't have a very streamlined way of making sure we got people on the list. Um, what The way that we worked this is that Premier gave us access to the list prior to opening up to the general public. So uh, of the 32 um, black physicians that I have on in, in, um, in our Gym City organization, we were able to have access to that list all the way up until Thursday, Thursday at noon. And I remember talking with Alois and said, Alois, I got more names coming in. I need, I need longer than noon. And she was like, Dr. Ayers, we got to fill the clinic up, and and you know, and we had 240 slots, um, and um, and I remember on on that Wednesday, I think we only had like 120 of the slots. So I was happy about the fact that we had that many that were filled, but you know, we still the conversion rate, you know, with them getting in touch with people, and some people were on the list that had already had the vaccination, which just befuddled me, but. Um, we, by that next day, we were able to, we had a hundred more people that we put on the list. Um, and once we did the, did the clinic, which was in the kind of in the heart of the West side of Dayton, um, it was, it was, it was a proud, proud moment to see, you know, that we were, what we set out to accomplish, we were able to accomplish. And, and I think the final number was at like 68% of the 240 slots were minority people. And so, you know, that made a big, that, that really kind of helped me see that we could, we could kind of come together and do something that has been a problem throughout the United States of America with vaccine hesitancy um, that has really, you know, I, I think it's hit all sectors of the United States. Um, but we also are seeing, you know, much more of a pushback in in the black community and so being able to be a voice there and um 
being able to to actually make a difference was was humongous. Um, and it was a good partnership that is continuing on that we are able to do with this. And so that was a more of a, I guess, more of a proud moment for me that we are able to um, get the vaccination out to to the people that that are being affected in a more lopsided way. So we're going to take a quick break. But first, what do a homemade Avengers mask, a bag of coffee and some pizza have in common? The answer when we come back. Stay with us. We know getting care comes with a little uncertainty right now. But behind these masks, you'll find unwavering dedication, compassion, and protection for you and the care we provide to you. You won't find us backing down. We won't stop. As long as you need us, we'll be here standing strong. Because it's who we are, and care is behind everything we do. Our care lives here. Premier Health. And we're back. The vaccine was clearly a big part of your best days over the last year. What were you feeling when you knew the vaccine was going to be available as early as December? Well, I, you know, I've said a lot of wrong things throughout this entire thing. And I had been for months saying that the first vaccines were going to be, eh, okay. Um, The second version be a little bit better. By the fourth or fifth version, you know, we'll, we'll have it down. And then the data comes out on the first vaccine and you're like, that's pretty good. And then another week or two later, a very similar vaccine gets data gets released and it's identical. And you're like, not only the vaccine here four months before I thought, I thought it'd be like right now. I thought it was going to be spring of 21. So not only do we beat that by four months, we're coming out with a really good vaccine. And knowing that vaccines, usually if you're 50%, that's a good vaccine. And you might see a vaccine for like shingles that's 80%. But this thing's coming in over 90% and really impressive data. And so, um, you know, it was was just neat that, one, we were going to have it. But it wasn't like giving people a 50-50 shot. I mean, it was preventing serious infections. And we thought maybe you were still contagious. Well, luckily, we've kind of worked through that. And you're really not contagious after you've been vaccinated. Um, but then the real work was just the logistics. And as Andre was saying, you know, making sure that various communities have access to it, trying to figure out the right process, because everybody wants the vaccine. I mean, just having the vaccine was great. But the headache and the work that uh, Fidelity and the other groups did to try to figure out the processes with pharmacy helping with that. Um, you know, I think things have gone as smoothly as could be expected. Uh, but it is just, I, I'm still flabbergasted that, the, you know, we're on, you know, they're looking at vaccine number four. And honestly, this isn't just changing. I mean, everybody on this call is COVID, COVID, COVID. When all this is over, I go back to general infectious diseases And this is going to change the way we vaccinate for flu, for all sorts of other diseases based on this technology. Um, But it has taken a lot of time and energy to educate, to break down the barriers. I mentioned social media earlier. Social media immediately says the vaccine causes infertility. And it just, the battle has been that much harder because of the social media fallacies that have been put out there. And the number of people that are refusing the vaccine because of social media fallacies is just very discouraging. 
Um, but we're getting there. The numbers are going up and more vaccine is available and, and it remains a very highly effective vaccine. You know, Mary, I, what, what I'd say is, <clears throat> I'd echo kind of what Steve said. I, I, I think the hardest thing for me when the vaccine first came out was, you know, all, all the false information and all, all the, I, well, I shouldn't say false because we didn't know it was false, but, you know, all the skepticism of people not wanting it and, and, and all the, the possibilities of should I get this, should I not get this? Um, and, and, and people just being hesitant to get it, which was, you know, which, which was unfortunate. Um, now with that said, going back to one of your previous questions, what, you know, I won't necessarily, I, I would agree with Rob that one of the happiest days for me was, um, you know, when the vaccine came out, I will also say that I am extremely happy today when my clinics are like overwhelming, robust, uh, that I don't even have enough, you know, I, it's like, I, I want to get it for you, but I, you know, next week, you know what I mean? And and that's that's a huge relief to me um, because I think all of us as as physicians, you know, looked at the science and looked at it and, and, and had our thoughts on it. But I think we all probably are in the same agreement that it was the right thing to do and was a great thing that saved many, many lives. Uh, it was just convincing people that, that, that of, of what we knew as physicians around that and it really seems to i won't i would agree with steve there's there's still skepticism but um my clinics are way more filled i have way more many people calling my office asking me how do i get in than i ever have before the pandemic was relentless what did you draw upon to make it through those rough stretches how did you get through it and is there a moment that comes to mind that illustrates this relying on folks in this call Honestly, even if it was not directly, I knew that uh, Steve and Rob were working their tails off, and you know, kind of saying, "Well, you know, we got to keep it up, keep doing what we're doing." Actions speak louder than words, right? And so they're showing it, uh, and uh, so certainly that helped. It uh, drove me to say, "Hey, I can do that. I can keep up, try to keep up there, and uh, keep that going." And then, honestly, going for myself, I'm a, a I'm a bit of an introvert, so I recharge my batteries when I'm at home and and away from this stuff. So. Getting home and having family there, if you want to think of like a silver lining of this, is that it kept a lot of the family at home. So we were having dinner together or doing whatever we could to kind of spend some time together, which really helped recharge my batteries and get me going for the next day or next week. Yeah, I think um, to follow up on what Joe said, it, it was it was the group dynamics. It was it was really teamwork. So at the beginnings, when we had our command structure set up uh, and our incident command we would have a lot of time in the room where we were all there and it was therapeutic uh, work because we were able to bounce things off each other. Um, we could see each other's frustrations and, and know when it was time to not feed something else into somebody's uh, ballpark. We also got an opportunity to share a lot of memes uh, that we would come across. And uh, so there was a lot of humor that I think when we had the opportunity just kept us going um but it was being able to have somebody there to help you make the decisions and when when they weren't helping make the decisions they were there to support your decision uh, and i think that, that was very important because like i said that there was no playbook for this uh as much as we talked about pandemics uh and we had it as part of our um, of our emergency preparedness plan, it was for flu. It, it it was nothing like this where we, you know, we were talking about 
this potential airborne um, pathogen that uh, everybody started comparing to the movies about Ebola, uh, where all of a sudden everybody was going to start dying just by being in a room, breathing with each other. Um, as much as we laugh about it now, that's what a lot of people really believed early on. And um, I relied on Steve a lot to be able to, you know, fact check me and Mark to help me make um, you know, some of the connections that I needed to. And um, um, Scott and Andre being able to manage their campuses because we only stretch so much. And I can't tell you how many times I would call on Joe um, about the clinic because it's it, the offices were a foreign environment to me uh, within PPN. So it, it really took a village to be able to get through this. You know, Mary, on, 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 a, on a personal note, like Joe, I, I tend to have some very personal ways to, to manage things through journaling and, and just thinking one day at a time, one day at a time, one week at a time. Uh, and just you know persevering, but probably the biggest piece of strength for me is if you look at this panel right here, Dr. Cologne, Dr. Burdett, Dr. Kanegi, Dr. Allen, Dr. Harris, as a system CMO, when I knew what I had, the army that I had of leaders, I almost felt like uh, my job was too easy. With, with with these people. I mean, at, at a text, at a moment's notice, at a phone call, I could get information, I could get help, I could get guidance uh, on so many things that I couldn't keep up with for a number of personal and other reasons. But, uh, you know, my, you know I, so I did have some personal areas of drawn for strength, but having this team made it so easy for me. That might be overstating it, but still, it was it was it was such a comfort. The the only thing that I'd add to this, and um, is that you know what I think really helped all of us, or at least at least helped me uh, with this, is that we we all went back and really thought about why we became physicians and why we did what we did and all the sacrifices we did. Um, you know. I, I would I would think that every single one of us probably would say, you know what, I, I wish this had never happened. Um, and I wish this had never occurred. And if I could, if I could, you know, if, if I could turn it around and say it, it, it just never happened, that'd be great. But with that said, every single one of us got to play in the championship game. You know what I mean? I mean, this is like once in a lifetime kind of thing. Um, and it was we were called to do it. And, you know, I, I, we all should be very, very proud uh, about what we did and the lives we saved, because, you know, the, not likely that we're all going to be asked to do this task again. We, we might be, but <laughs> I hope not. But, you know, um, it, it's kind of like a once in a lifetime kind of thing of exactly what we all trained for. Mary, I got a chance. My my role is a little bit different than um, than the other CMOs and that I'm I'm still practicing. Um, so I think that for me, it was, I, I bounced back and forth between both worlds. So not only did I have to see what we were doing in Premier and at Atrium, but then I had to see, okay, how am I going to institute this at my office? Um, I'm still seeing, I'm an OBGYN, I'm still seeing patients, you know, we, 
we had to, it, it was kind of, it was kind of, uh, that helped me to not just be focused in just one area all the time, because, you know, we had to institute things in my office to say, okay, one, are we, are we kind of going with the same paces, what I'm seeing everybody else do? Um, how do we get our patients in and out of the office safely? Um, at one point in time, um, especially when the contact thing was really high, and at the time I still had a uh, family practice doctor that was practicing with me, we, we propped the doors open. And this was because we were on in kind of an interior suite and people were coming off the elevator and getting into our offices. Uh, we took and propped the doors open, cleaned everything down. So they, the front door and then the door back to the, where you could get where we get the patients, those doors were open already. So patients didn't have to reach out and touch the door. I think it added a, a level of, of safety to them. Um, we started strategizing and our, our EMR that we used was really progressive and that we could have patients wait out in, in their cars. And so we could text them and say, hey, you know, come in. We don't want a whole bunch of people in the lobby. Um, and then it was the how we dealt with the how we dealt with the uh, face mask side of things. That was, you know, you can imagine how much of a hurdle that was at the beginning. Um, whether, you know, we, we kind of went from, you know, we're not going to force you to do it to, okay, everybody in the office needs to do it to, we're not going to force our patients to do it. And how do we manage patients that don't come in with a mask on? So it, it just, you know, I think I had, I had the balance of these two worlds that I was playing in, you know, along with Rob Institute things, but then I had to I had, you know, it wasn't just the policy, but then it was, okay, how do I actually follow the policy on the back end of it? Um, so it gave me a gave me a different perspective on on how to approach this pandemic from two different ways uh, that I thought was helpful to me. So. so a lot of you have shared with me the support of your colleagues and what that meant to you. What impact did the outpouring of community support have, especially on a difficult day? I still have my very first mask that somebody made in from the community and it has the uh, it has the Avengers on it. Everybody that sees it, they love that particular mask. But that mask, my my colleague sitting next to me that was handling all of the influx of of masks that we were getting from the community gave that to me at the very beginning of the pandemic. And I still have it. Um, So, you know, it's just that those were little things we were getting. You know, along with the mask, everybody, you know, different organizations were trying to send food or they were trying to send um, snacks. Uh, You know, people were just trying to do what they could from their part. You know, they're like, you guys are taking care of the patients and trying to make the rules and, you know, all that different type of stuff. What can we do that's helpful um, for the community? So that was that's I I still have that same mask. Um, Need to wash it. (laughs) <laughs> quite a bit because <laughs> I've had it for a while, but you know, that's just an example of something that we got from the community. So I will say that in July with the first wave, again, May, April rough, but I think it was around July when we kind of had our first real wave. Um, the nurses upstairs were struggling and somebody delivered a box of Black Rifle coffee. Um and those nurses up on nine just went ecstatic. And 
they all, they gave me a bag. And again, I, I like coffee. I probably will drink this, but I just kind of a memento that the little things that the community did, um, delivering pizzas, delivering, you know, donuts again, I, not, not for me, um, but for the staff that, um, don't get recognized for respiratory therapy, for the patient care techs, for the nurses, a bag of coffee, a donut, a box of pizza that they could socially distance and have a couple pieces of pizza really went a long way. Um, and I still get a little bit emotional just thinking about the little things like that that were very helpful to the uh, to the nurses who were, while it was rough for us, Again, I wasn't talking to the patient eight hours a day. I wasn't having to hold their hands when they were dying because there's no family members there. They were doing that. And so stuff like this was very helpful to them. So Mary, I <clears throat> I apologize because this this is all positive and everybody's smiling. I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna look at the different side of this. Um <clears throat> so here at Upper Valley, um yes, we had everything that everybody here talked about, um, you know, with with the community. Uh, you know, coming and lo lots of individuals in the community here um, that um, supported um, and, and helped and brought things to the hospital, which was great. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I will never forget, though, is that at the very beginning uh, with our nursing homes, uh, there was certain vendors, uh, when Kester and Springmead first got the breakout here, that refused to uh, bring supplies to our nursing homes. Uh, the, the, the companies flat out said no. Uh, there were local companies that asked individuals that they knew were nurses or providers at the two nursing homes to please not uh, uh, come to their businesses. Um, and it, I understand a little bit kind of what they're saying, but it wasn't always positive um and we and, and there's a lot of care workers at Kester and Springmead that um really um took some undue um you know uh, problems from the community too um and it was just not knowing and and we worked through it uh, and like I said I don't I don't mean to bring it down but I think there's another side to it too because it, it, it was real and it happened well you know there were nurses that worked in the COVID units that were basically told not to come eat lunch down on a non-COVID unit, you know, you you stay up there. We don't want you down down with us. And so it wasn't even just the community; it was even within the healthcare community that the people early on, people covering and taking care of the COVID patients, um, were at times even shunned within within healthcare workers. I really appreciate you sharing those things. It's real, and that's what we're here to talk about, what really happened over the last year. If you could tell yourself one thing at the beginning of the pandemic, what would that be? What would you have done differently with that information? Get ready for a very long, drawn-out engagement. Um, and it would have. I, I think we started treating, or at least I did, like we would any mass catastrophe where you know there's a lot of activity get everything ready and it's it's relatively limited in duration you have the event and you have you know the the casualties that are coming afterwards and then there's a short period after where there's some time for things to get back to normal this this didn't really 
stop. It would ease off and then it would peak back up. Uh, and every time we we thought that there was a glimmer of hope, there's another bump in the curve and then you know big spike. And it really wasn't until the end of the year where we initially were hoping we were going to be emerging from things that we saw the biggest number of cases. Um, and I think what it changed was the perspective that we we thought, at least I went into it with, we got to have the perfect plan in place and that was going to be it. Um, you know, we were down to plan Z, uh, I think by, by, by the end of the year, because everything had to continuously evolve. And that was not something I had really anticipated when we went into it. Um, and I think it would have absolutely changed my approach to have been a lot more flexible at the beginning uh, and probably tolerated more imperfections early on than than we really did with what we started putting together. Yeah, I would agree with that, Ron. And I certainly, I think if I had to tell myself one thing, it would just be to really, really appreciate the people around you. Uh, there was, we get to be the face of this. A lot of the folks on this call, we get to be the face and the voice of kind of a lot of things that happen. But uh, those folks around you that do all do a lot of that heavy lifting, as you talked about the nursing staff and Scott as well, and how much work they did and how they made this possible. Um, appreciate them. And then just know that you know, through all the dark days, through all the really bad stuff that we went through over the last year, at the end of this, you'll be in a position like this where I feel, um, even though I'd never want to go through this again, having gone through it, I'm better for it. And I do believe, I feel very fulfilled, as Scott said, in my in the role that we played and uh, our impact in, in a large scale of the, uh, the community there. But we had a very positive impact overall in a very um, difficult time. So I don't know that it would change anything that I would do necessarily. I think uh, Rob did very well on the being a little more flexible, but, uh, but at the same time, uh, very fulfilling work at the end of the day. Mary, I, I would, I, I, one thing I'd give to make this better would be that I would just ask everybody to <clears throat> realize everybody was doing the best they could and uh, just give forgiveness more um, when, 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 when things changed, uh, you know, kind of thing, because knowing everybody was on the same team. And as always, what's one last thing that you'd like to leave our listeners with? As always, Mary, I tell them to stay in the fight. Don't give up. Continue with the things that got us here. The end is in sight, but it's not here yet. My advice would be for healthcare workers to uh, encourage vaccination, talk to their patients about it, um, and specifically some of the concerns with pregnancy, with fertility, those answers are easily corrected and they are fallacies. Um, and again, it's an individual choice. Um, but I don't want somebody to say no to a very effective vaccine just because they read something on on Twitter. I would have to echo what Dr. Balcastro said is we are in a much better place than we were a year ago where we were just seeing the beginning. We are now seeing the hopefully tail end of this, but we're not done. Um, and if if we let off right now, this still carries a risk of popping back up again and killing a lot more people than it has to. So I think to follow Dr. Burdett's advice, get your information from a healthcare professional. Talk to your physician about the vaccines before you turn it down. It's our best tool right now to really beat this disease into submission. I love what the I love what my other colleagues have said. You know, it it is it is the 
I don't know. There are some people that aren't going to be convinced um, to take the vaccination. Um, and that is that is what it is. Uh, we we're in a different time frame now. Um, information, be it true or false or somewhere in between, is so available to us that uh, it just a matter. And 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 the way that social media, you know, going to what Steve is talking about, social media feeds you what you what you believe. Um, and so you don't even get if you don't go out to search out information, you're not your feeds are going to give you more of the same. So I think if we, you know, if there's one thing that we can push out to people to encourage them, it is to really, really is to get educated. You know, it, the, the studies are long and they have a lot of pages on them, but that's what we're basing our information off of. You know, we're, we're going off of, off of that type of information and, and there is just a lot of there's a lot of hesitancy that I think can be overcome with uh, reading reading a document um, and spending that time. But you know, because people don't want to spend that time, do do take the time to talk to to a healthcare professional. Do take the time to talk with your doctors and 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 reach out to people who who have a better knowledge basis than than your Twitter Twitter feed friends. So. Um, Facebook can be good for some things, but it also can can hinder a lot. So, and if I could just add to that, not to do a shameless plug, but um, I did a webinar two weeks ago for the Ohio Hospital Association that went over a lot of the fallacies. You know, addressing the fertility. You know, 24 women became pregnant after getting the Pfizer vaccine. So it, apparently, you can you're still fertile. There was one miscarriage, and it was in somebody who got the placebo. So again, people, the answers are out there. The Ohio Hospital Association has the webinar with references, 45 minutes, they can watch it. But the healthcare providers that are watching this, there is stuff that's easily out there that will give you the information you need to answer your patients' questions. Um, I, th I think for me, spinning out here, just kind of trailing all of that, I agree 100%. I think the best way I've had the discussion in the office with patients is avoid confirmation bias. And avoid, avoid that. I have a, an idea in my head, and I'm only going to seek out that information that supports that idea. Make a point to read information that's contrary to what you believe sometimes and, and broaden your horizons a little bit. Um, I view myself in the office as more of an educator than a rental physician that maybe we saw two, three generations ago where I tell them what to do. I, I really just want to make sure they have the information to make an educated decision. And, and yet, read those different sources, get that, get that information there, make your decision based on that. Don't have a, that preformed notion of this is bad and I'm only going to look for things that are going to support that idea. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank Bye you, Mary. Guys. Thanks, Mary. None of us had a choice when it came to the hand we were dealt in 2020. Difficult is an understatement. We will never be the same. But the other day, I was driving home and it was gloomy and storming and just gross outside. But the rain started to ease up, and even though the sky was kind of gray, the sun was starting to come back out, and then there was this really pretty rainbow. And it reminded me that sometimes really beautiful things can come out of something ugly. I really believe we're at the beginning of the end of, um, of this pandemic. We lost a lot of lives. We lost a lot of family friends. We watched entire families die. Um, 
but we worked together. And I just hope that people can look at that and see that humans in general can, can come through anything if we can get through this. You know, you do what you can do, but I think that that's where I think our staff all became so galvanized as one unit. It's not nursing and respiratory and EVS and pharmacy. It was we caregivers supporting each other. And sometimes you just got to let your friend cry and say, okay, I, I got two big shoulders. Come on, grab one. I brought along to share with you some wonderful artwork. We posted these in various places in our unit and um, it was Every day you came in and maybe saw a different piece of artwork from these these students and these young young people, and it it was wonderful to see their artwork and know how much they supported us. The most amazing part about the whole entire past year, though, is the outpouring of support from the community to the hospital, like we've never seen before. Um, right away, we didn't have masks to wear, so. Um, there were so many people in the entire community that sat at home and made masks and sent them into the hospital. We had so many masks right away that any employee who wanted them could have them. I learned not to take anything for granted. Um, my family, my job here, um, you know, I think before COVID, uh, you know, I crumbled and complained a lot more, you know? Um, and then when all that can be taken away just like that, uh, it really makes you appreciate your job, um, your health insurance, uh, your family, your team. I work with an amazing team. You just don't take anything for granted after going through this. Healthcare workers have shown all over the country, all over the world, that you know we can we can band together to 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 save people, um, to to bring about good. And I just hope that someday people are able to look back on this and so many negative things have come out of this, but there are positive things as well. And I just really hope that people can look back and forget about the petty things, forget about those, you know, little arguments that you had and, and just realize that we've come through something horrific that we never really truly expected. You know, there's a lot of times when I'm taking a patient to a test or a procedure and I'm that last face they see. And so if I can have a positive attitude and I can have a smile on my face or a kind word, that might be just what they need at that time or even a little joke, but it might be something that they need because they are alone and they just need that kind word or that smiling face. And I'm just thankful that I had that opportunity. And like I say, I consider myself blessed to be have been a frontline worker. Knowing that I was a frontline person that was able to help these patients and help guide their families and actually be there for them um, is why I went into nursing in the first place. These patients that were diagnosed with COVID needed, needed us there because they had nobody else. They were alone in the hospital. So if I, if I wasn't showing up for work, they would have been alone. Thank goodness I work for a company like I do, Premier. They recognized it, I mean, and they supported me wholeheartedly. You can get more information 24-7 at premierhealth.com slash COVID-19. 
And we want you to get the information you need about COVID-19 vaccines from people you can trust. Visit our COVID-19 vaccine hub for up-to-date interviews with our physician leaders, fact sheets, news, and more about COVID-19 vaccines at premierhealth.com vaccine. This has been Premier Health Now On Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. Our care lives here.